It's episode seven of Pitching In, and I'm your host, Chloe Abbott. And I'm Paul Abbott, Chloe's dad. This past, past weekend, we had a little more sports in there with the NFL draft. What do you uh, What do you think about it? I thought it was awesome. I think it's exactly what we needed. Obviously, record viewership for tuning in to watch the NFL draft. It was virtual. Everybody was spread out, and it was unique, different, but something that was live and something that was we aren't watching reruns of. It was it was exciting and gave us a glimmer and a spark that there's going to be sports this year. Right. And how about Cliff Kingsbury's um, home? It was gorgeous. Well, I'm sure for most of the country, Arizona is looking really good right now with their 100-degree weather. For the third time in a row, the Heisman winner has gone first overall, and this year was Joe Burrow. See you later, Andy Dalton. Yeah, you know, Andy Dalton had a good run, but this is a business. It's about winning just in every sport, and they had the opportunity to draft an electric, potentially face of the NFL, future face, and we'll see what happens. He did have the best passing season in college history. Pretty good. And we'll get to your favorite team, the well, Bears. Well, I don't know why we didn't start talking about them in the first place. Yeah, my Bears, 12-4 and four, two years ago, slipped last year. Mitchell struggled mightily. But, you know, with the trade for getting Khalil Mack, them not having a first-round pick, they, we had to wait till day two. And, you know, a lot of people have talked about them drafting a tight end when they have nine tight ends on the roster. But if you look close, they really only have two that, that count. Uh, they just signed Jimmy Graham, obviously, which I think is a great sign down by the goal line. But, you know, the reports were Cole Komet was the best tight end out there, and they got him with their, with their second-round pick. So he, he plans on being there. They plan on him being there for a long time. I like their Jalen Johnson draft a good corner it's gonna set up well across from my boy Kyle Fuller and then we had to wait till round five I think Travis Gibson's a, a, a really sick athlete and had a chance to be a sleeper so I was I was happy with the draft you know they, they uh they, I think they did pretty good you know still gonna come down to Mitch Trubisky and Nick Foles and then and if he slips at all, then you got Nick Foles. And Nick Foles, is, he's done something that not many quarterbacks have done. He's one of the big ones. So uh, I'm excited. I thought it was a good draft. I think Nick Foles will be a really good fit. And I don't know if it's still Mitch Trubisky's position. Nick Foles has a pretty good resume. Well, Mitch had a great year two years ago. He's just going to have to get out hot and win. That's bottom line. He's got to win. It'll be a good team competition. Be able to motivate each other. Shifting over to baseball, this episode we have our first special segment, which is the past player spotlight, where we are going to talk about two players who deserve more recognition than they are getting. And we're going to talk about the first month of the baseball season, as well as finish with a question. And that question is, what was worse for baseball, the steroid era or the Astros cheating scandal, which we have talked about in our previous episodes, but we're going to do a quick little which is worse. I read the other day that there are 20 states that could be open for hosting baseball, so that could be coming back really soon. That's big news. It seems like every 
every day now they're talking about baseball starting. That's very optimistic, uh, good news. Even when Governor Como says in New York that he sees the Mets and the Yankees hosting games there, more importantly, it tells us that, you know, the, the COVID-19 is going away. So with that, with the talks of baseball, things are looking better in the country, and we can get excited about possibly playing baseball. The first month of baseball is always the most exciting because everyone, all the fans are pumped that it's opening day and everyone's excited to see who's going to come out hot and the players are coming off hot from a warm, fun spring training. So why don't you talk about some of your first months? Yeah, so I always say that there are four adjustments you got to make as a pitcher leading up to the season. The first one is you've been home in the offseason, you're getting ready for spring, you're throwing your bullpens, you're playing catch, but it's nothing it, nothing close to the workload that you're going to start when you get to spring training. So you throw your first bullpen in front of eyes. you got your manager, your pitching coach, people walking behind you. You're, you're, you're standing next to, when you're young, you're standing next to a guy who throws extremely hard or a veteran guy that you know who plays in the big leagues. It's exciting. So the adrenaline's kicked in and the effort's a little bit more than, than when you were – at home getting ready. So you're a little bit sore after the, after those first sessions. And then you throw live BP. So you're facing hitters, which you haven't faced hitters in the offseason. That's an adjustment. Then you get your first spring training game. Now you're being evaluated. Now there's people in the stands. You're facing hitters that, that when it counts. And so the drilling and the intent kicks in. So then you start the season. Now the lights turn on. You've been playing nothing but day games in spring training. And now there's 40,000 people in the stands. And you got to get comfortable with that, pitching in front of people, pitching against the best players in the world, getting starting your season, your goal start on that very first day. It's a whole different mindset than it was that, from that first day of spring. And your season starts, and it's April. And you go from Florida or Arizona, where it's anywhere from 85 to 95. You've got your solid farmer's tan working, and you show up. And if, depending where you're at in the country, I've started seasons in Seattle. I've started seasons in Portland, Oregon. Portland, Maine as a coach. Uh, the coldest place ever was opening day in 1986 in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It was with a wind chill. It's right off of Lake Michigan. It was, they said, two degrees with the wind chill. So you can imagine what the score was of that game. Brutal. One, one nothing. And back in those days, we wore stirrups. And stirrups are when you pull your socks up, you have socks underneath, and you over over your socks you put stirrups. Well, when you're not playing in a game and and you put on what they call these sanitary socks, ultra sheen, ultra thin, you and you usually wear two. It doesn't matter if it's 100 degrees. You, the minimum you're going to wear is two. But back in those days, we didn't have the socks they have where they're ultra insulated. You'd have to wear about four or five sanitary socks underneath your shoes and you you could in Kenosha Wisconsin and in Portland in the in the in Oregon in the uh in the Pacific Coast League we'd we'd open up sometimes up in Canada so you're in Calgary you're in Vancouver Edmonton freezing and you can't feel your toes if you're not playing and you, usually there's a heater or something you're camping out by the heater but you got to stay away from it cuz the guys are playing they need to stay warm 
you're bundled up. You've got layer upon layer. It's it's quite the adjustment going from sunny Florida, Arizona, to instant cold in a lot in most of the country at that time. I've honestly never experienced that cold of weather. The coldest I think I've ever been is in Utah this past October, which wasn't even that cold. So I can't even imagine playing a game, let alone not playing in the game, and just sitting in the dugout with what uh, what was the warmest thing you had on a sweatshirt? Yeah, well, light sweatshirt. But you're playing in Salt Lake City, Utah, in April, and you're throwing your bullpen, and it starts to snow. You know, and there's it's in, in other parts of the country with that, that weather and it rains, it just adds to it. But it's a, Or if it's a mist, it's a miserable feeling because you're damp, your cleats clog up, you're trying to pitch, the mound's muddy, it's slick and it's slippery. It's, it's, it's tough to execute, especially in the minor leagues. In the big leagues, they're putting diamond dry on it. They get it, they get it in good shape. It's the big leagues. But – Back in the, down in the minor leagues, it's not that's not quite how it is. They do the best they can. They do a good job. They're, it's a lot better today than it was back in when I played in the '80s in the minor in the minor leagues. But it's the same for both sides. So it is what it is, and you deal with it, and you you do the best you can. What's the worst weather has ever gotten you? Well, worst weather. What what I saw one time. One that sticks out in my my mind is. In Orlando, you get some some horrendous, horrible thunderstorms, and the grounds crew's got to hustle to get the tarp on there, and they're fighting winds, they're fighting torrential downpour, and I, I just remember they're pulling it and they're dragging the, the tarp, they're rolling it out, and one of the uh, the grounds crew slipped underneath the mat, and they kept going with. It was a girl, and she was underneath the tarp, and she was, they had it pulled about a quarter of the way over her before they realized that she was under there, and they had to stop and pull it out. And, and you know, when that thing's whipping, it's really hard to pull, and you can't stop because once it stops, it sticks to the ground, and it's really hard to start. But, but it was uh, – that's that one that – was, it was kind of scary because you, you, I saw it happen. And she's stuck underneath the, the tarp, and they didn't notice it. And we're, we're screaming and yelling, and the, you know, a few of us were stuck left in the dugout, and uh, she ended up being fine. But it was uh, just a visual of that. But you know, the rain comes, you get stuck in the dugout, you can't go. It's lightning. You're waiting for this to to pass, hopefully, or lighten up so you can run to the to the warmth of the of the clubhouse. But April's tough. April can be tough. I pulled tarp when I was in all that. So brutal. It's so hard when it's raining and wet, and it's like only your shoes should be wet, but you end up just being absolutely drenched. Your whole body is a grind to pull a tarp. You ha- you've done it when you're a coach at college, maybe, or independent league when you're coaching. No, never done it. I've just I've seen plenty do it, and it's not it's not easy. They get they get their shoes off. They're barefoot. They're 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 digging in. It's a it's part of the gig. Well, how'd you how'd you pitch in April? Um, you know, I don't remember in April's getting off to too great of starts. I uh, the best start I got off to was my last year with Tampa Bay, which was my only good month of that whole season. <laughs> but it was a, it was a good April. But I was hurt a lot to start the season. Uh, 
started a couple Aprils in the bullpen, played for some bad teams where Aprils were, were, were not my best month. So, uh, like I said, for me, that adjustment, I, had to, I needed to do a better job, which I, I didn't. April was not my best month. Well, why do you think that? I don't know. I can't really put a finger on it. I was ready to go. Uh, you know, it's just that just sometimes you pitch good and the numbers don't reflect it. You pitch good and you get a couple losses. So right out, right going into May, it, you're one and three and you're playing catch up to get on the on the other side of, of that record. So, you know, you, you, you pitch good and everybody's just kind of dependent on your team, the heart, the, the pulse of the club. We get off to a slow start as a team. It just is kind of a reflection to everybody. And this, a lot of pitchers have been historically slow starters and end up winning Cy Youngs. You know, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. You just got to stay with routine, address what needs to be addressed, fix what needs to be fixed, and don't look back. Just move forward. You know, the one thing about April is – once it's over, you still have five months of the season left in the big leagues. Plenty of time to get the ship going in the right direction and and putting up a good good season and, and hitting the goals and reaching the goals that you, that you want. Do you feel like maybe you come in too hot in April? You're too pumped and then you go overboard? No. You know, it's just it's, – it's an adjustment. And you, sometimes you just – you need that month to get settled in. My best season, I started on the DL in April, and my first month was May, and uh, ended up being my 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 best season wins wise with Seattle in two thousand one. Would you say coming off the DL is a way harder adjustment than anything else? It can be. Your pitch count's probably not where it would be if you were healthy. You're being monitored close. You know, you, you go on a couple of rehab starts, but it's nothing like, like being in the big leagues. But when you get older, you realize that it's also time to – the, the light turns on, and you know how to, how to make that adjustment too. It's, it rehab's over. It's time to go. You've, you've given the green light. The medical staff gives you the green light, and it's time to, time to pick up where you left off. Yeah, you have to have an itch when you know you're at the end. You feel 100%, and you know that you're ready, so you've got to get want to get out there. Careers are short. Small window of opportunity. It's no fun being on the DL or the I, IL, which they call it now, and you, know, you give opportunity to somebody else to shine. You don't want to do that. You know, you want to you – want to, First of all, you want to be there for your team. You want to put up numbers and help the team win. And you want to you know, take advantage of, of the time you have while you're playing baseball. Is there an April game that stands out in your mind? Actually, yeah. There was uh, that last year when I was with Tampa. That was my best April. Uh, I started against the Yankees in Tampa. It was my first start of the season. And... I started out with five no-hit innings, and then Derek Jeter broke it up with a laser that almost killed the third baseman, Aubrey Huff. 
Um, but they ended up going, I think, seven, gave up three runs, two run, two runs, lost two to one. And it was it was a good start, but it, it was uh, it was uh, I was actually obviously because of my last year I was older, so I was prepared, I was ready to go, and excited to start the season, and and got off to a good start. That started, I, I got the loss, but won the next two and pitched pretty good, and then it was all downhill from there. But that that one really stands out. So you obviously pitched a great game, but you still got the loss. What is that like? How do you feel, or how does the team react? Well, all you can do is give your team a chance to win. When you go out there to pitch, you don't always your team don't get to win, even though your team wins as a starting pitcher. So your job is to get put the team in a position to where the, you you win. So if, if the other guy pitching against you pitches a great game and you only give up one run, you lose one to nothing. You pitch really well, but you got a loss. But you did your job. You gave yourself the team a chance to win. So in those in those they're they're, they're, they're small battles that you lost, but you, you actually you have some momentum and some positive thoughts going into the next game. You didn't you didn't last three innings, give up seven. You know, you, you pitched six, seven innings, you gave the team a chance to win, and it was a positive first start. So uh, those games those games are, are victories, even though they're not a W in the in the paper, and and, the, and something to build on for your next start. Right, and like you said, that's something that's understood and everybody knows. What's really cool about that season is it actually started in Japan, Tokyo. It was so fun because our whole entire family went, even my Grammy, and we had a great time. We got to go to Disneyland in Tokyo. Yeah, it was uh, opening day was in Tokyo against the Yankees, the mighty Yankees, and we're the Tampa Bay Devil Rays back then, uh, up and coming. We were a ways away. They were a ways. We were a ways away from being the organization that was been successful the last fifteen or so years. But it was it was it was quite the experience. It's something that I'm really excited and happy that got to go over there. And we had two exhibition games against two of the Japanese teams and see how they play and how the fans react. And you know, it's completely different than over here. A lot of enthusiasm. They love baseball. And uh, it was it was an experience that you got to be a part of, and all our families were over there. It was a, it was a nice experience. It was so cute over there. It's really cartoony, and we got kimonos. Well, I did obviously. The boys didn't, but it was awesome. Cartoony. That's a little different over there. That's a good good way to say it. They they remember the dragon dance they had out there pre. Before the game, the pre-show, it's it's it was pretty cool. So let's move on to our segment, the past player spotlight. Today we have all Al Oliver and Gary Templeton. Let's start with Al. He is a seven-time All-Star. He won the '71 World Series, a three-time Silver Slugger. And he even had a batting title at the age of 35 with Texas, career batting average of 303, and career total 219 home runs. Yeah, Oliver, when, when I was growing up, um, started watching baseball in the 70s, baseball cards were huge. 
And that's where you saw what kind of players guys were when you were young. You turn over their card, you get this player, you start reading stats, get, getting into the stats, and, and you know, there were guys that just that really stood out. You recognize the names from the baseball cards. You see them when they come into town to play against your favorite team, and, and Al Oliver was one of those guys that really stood out. But, you know, when you see and look closer at his career, it's 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 amazing that the, the the numbers and the and the career that he had and people people tend to forget how how great a lot of these guys were. We didn't have I'm, I'm going over the same same spiel co- yeah conversation last week and I'll probably do it again. But you know we don't didn't have ESPN and we didn't have social media, so it's unfortunate but these guys are forgotten and that's why we're gonna. We're talking about these guys, but Al Oliver is one of those guys. When you talk to players and older players about pure hitter, that's what Al Oliver was. I think he's a borderline Hall of Famer. You know, you look close, and he's he. You're right. I mean, finished with a hitting over 300. He's got 2,700 hits, and the power numbers weren't there. But he, it was a different era. He's got 1,300 RBIs, and this guy. You know, everybody tails off at, at the end of their career, but you take away the last few years of his career, I mean, he's, you know, never hit under 300 until, like, the last four or five years. So he's, you know, people forget about these players, seven-time All-Star, played for great teams, and then he became that veteran guy that was a big asset to your team with a good veteran influence, professional, and made your team better when he, when he came on. 35 is, I mean, kind of old to have a batting title. No doubt. I mean, how many times did he did he have a great year where he was close to the top? He was always at the top of, of leading the league and hitting. But, it, you know, he did it in, in 1982. And then 85, he had a walk-off hit in the ALCS game two. Yeah, clutch hitter. Do you know why his nickname is Scoop? They called him Scoop because he had a upper level, elite level ability to dig the ball out of the dirt on low throws from from infielders, and he could scoop it out of the dirt all the time. So the nickname he got was Scoop. That's pretty cool. I love. I think the nicknames are really fun, and obviously they do a players' weekend, and everyone gets to put their nickname on the back. It's it's fun. Yeah, I wish there was more, more guys that had nicknames. They had a lot more nicknames back in those days. All right, our second guy, our second spotlight is Gary Templeton, shortstop mainly with the Padres, three-time All-Star, two-time Silver Slugger, switch hitter, and he had a 16-year career. Yeah, Gary Templeton was on his way to being a Hall of Fame baseball player until he had some knee issues. Everybody, I, I actually – have a good relationship with Gary. Gary, I played for Gary my last year, and, and I played indie ball with the with the Orange County. Actually, they were the Fullerton Flyers back then, and I got to play for Gary. Gary's awesome, um, fun to play for, a strong desire to win, and he was he was he was a good baseball guy, good golfer too. But he, uh, you know, growing up, he's from down the street in Santa Ana, and he was a first round pick with immense talent, fast. And they said that back in the day he was one of the fastest guys in the league. 
Yeah, and Hall of Fame manager Dick Williams said that he had the best arm he's ever seen for a shortstop. Yeah, he was actually kind of uh, an outlier. He was one of the, the bigger shortstops back in the day when they thought that position was was more skilled for for speedy uh, smaller guys. And he's he's a, he's a big guy. He's six one for a shortstop back then was was big. But he started switch hitting. I think he said in 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 triple A's a natural right hander. He started switch hitting. Back then they were they were taking a lot of the faster players. Turn them around, teach them how to switch hit from the left side because they could beat out with all the AstroTurf back in those days, bigger fields. They taught him how to hit the ball on the ground and beat it, beat it out. And with his speed, he was a perfect candidate. So with that being said, I remember in 79, he was the first player to get 100 hits from both sides of the plate, which I don't. it's only been done a couple times. Like Willie Wilson's one of the other ones. But, you know, he, he, before he hurt his knee, he led the league in triples three years in a row. Awesome. He was he hit three hundred until he hurt his knee, and then 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 he he was just became the overall just a solid major league baseball player, shortstop that could could do everything, uh, professional player, super athletic, yeah, extremely could make plays that you know back you know, we didn't see it because we didn't have the coverage, and you saw the great plays Ozzy Smith made, but they talked they. Plenty of veteran players talked about the plays that Gary could make too, because he had the arm. Like a laser. Yeah. So he uh, he was uh, he was fun to watch. He uh, you know played hard, had a little controversy behind him. There's some famous famous lines. He he made three time All Star, and one time he didn't get voted in. There was a famous line he said that if I ain't starting, I ain't departing. But it's you know he was just a, a classy guy, solid guy. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of his, and and uh, his career was on the path. And fortunately, a little bit of an injury slowed him down, but still had a great career. Yeah, he did. And our question this episode, like I previously previously mentioned, which is worse for baseball, steroids or the Astros cheating scandal? Astros cheating scandal by far. You know, it's it's. I think it's 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 a it's a collective group of people cheating. It's it's stems further beyond the players. There's other people involved. Where the steroid player was just looking for the edge, and and I don't think that, that when steroids started that they really players really believed that it was going to harm the game. But you know, it's an illegal drug, and and it, it does impact your performance in a in a big way but it became an epidemic it became widespread unfortunately but at the same time you still had to hit the ball you still had to throw strikes you had to catch the ball and that's not still even with that it's not that's hard to do but when you're blatantly you know changing the outcome of the game because of of you know stealing signs and whatnot is I, I think that's worse that's what i think that's my opinion right i like what you said vincent it's more like individuals aside from a whole team agreeing to do this and that's what's most disappointing last podcast we talked about the people you meet along the way of baseball and we paid tribute to my dad's friend sandals wart 
and there is another person that recently passed away that I wanted to highlight and his name is Pat I met him when my dad's low A ball team from Greenville went to Lakewood New Jersey and he was the bodyguard he was so kind to me went out of his way to make sure I was fed there was a little event and he slept me a wristband when he didn't have to do any of that and he would talk to me during the game so I wasn't sitting by myself and he was just such a nice hilarious guy that I loved to hang out with when I went it was great for me because he made me feel comfortable that you were safe and and you were not out and about you're in he always made sure you had food and he took care of you when I had and I could focus on the game not focus on whether you were okay or not I just a just a good good guy right and I really appreciated our friendship and getting to know him. I'm really lucky that our paths crossed. And that is the end of episode seven. Thank you for pitching in. See you next week.